1: Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled, The Ivory Soap Murders. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I was thinking about cake mixes. Now, if you go to the typical supermarket here in the United States, you'll see that three brands dominate the ready-mix cake mixes, Those are Betty Crocker, Duncan Hines, and Pillsbury. Of course, all these brands all got their start selling something at some time in history. So my question for you is which product was the first to bear the Duncan Hines name? His name was associated with all of the products I'm about to list, but which one was the first? And here are your choices. Was it 1. Blueberry Muffin Mix? 2. Bread? 3. Cake mix, four ice cream, or five pancake mix? Again, which was the first product to carry the Duncan Hines name? Was it one blueberry muffin mix, two bread, three cake mix, four ice cream, or five pancake mix? And as always, I'll let you ponder over these choices and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story that I've titled. The Ivory Soap Murders, and for this story we have to rewind our clocks back to March 28th of 1937. That's when we find a guy named Joseph Gideon with a bouquet of white lilies at 216 East 50th Street in the fashionable Beekman Hills section of New York City. Now the reason for the flowers was that Gideon had been separated from his wife Mary for the previous few years and he had been invited by her to join the rest of the family for Easter dinner. Upon arrival at the apartment building, he pressed the buzzer to be let up, but there was no reply. So he waited in the lobby for his daughter Ethel and her husband Joseph Kudner to arrive. And once they did, they buzzed again, but they still received no answer. Uh-oh. As a result, the trio sought out the building superintendent, and they proceeded upstairs. To their surprise, the door to the fourth-floor apartment was ajar. It was open. At first, everything seemed fine. No one was in the living room. No one was in the bathroom. No one was in the kitchen. Then Dad proceeded to his wife's bedroom, and again, it was empty. Now, Mrs. and sublet two of the bedrooms to boarders, so they first checked the room of a professional model named Lucy Bianco. Upon opening the door, Mr. Gideon discovered the nude body of his 20-year-old daughter, Veronica, who was called Ronnie for short. She had been strangled to death. They then proceeded to the last bedroom in the house, which had been sublet to a 35-year-old man named Frank Burns. He, too, was dead, brutally stabbed 11 times. But there was still no sign of the mom. Police quickly arrived and began to assess the situation. Mrs. Gideon's dog, Tushi, who was a Pekingese, kept whining while hiding beneath the bed that Ronnie was lying dead upon. Then suddenly the dog lurched out and nipped at one of the detectives before retreating back under the bed. That's when Joseph Gideon got down on his knees to grab the dog and discovered the body of his wife. The 54-year-old mother had also been strangled. So here we have an apartment that was occupied by four people, three of which are dead. Immediately, attention turned to the missing roommate, Lucy Biacco, but daughter Ethel knew that she was out of town for the holiday weekend. The press reported there was little evidence of what had happened. Ronnie had some bruises on her neck and throat, and that was probably from trying to fend off her attacker. Her hair was partially in curlers, which told detectives that she must have been in the bathroom and unable to complete putting them on. A search of the bathroom found that the remaining curlers were on the edge of the sink while her dress, slip, and bra was sitting on the hamper. What was really bizarre was that her fur coat and her pocketbook were inside, yes, inside the hamper. The only witness was a neighbor who said that she heard a scream about 1 a.m., which of course police concluded was the time that mom was killed they deduced from the evidence found that the murderer then went to frank burns's room where the coroner determined that the fatal blow came from a very thin very sharp instrument you know something like an awl or an ice pick that had been pushed through his ear canal and into his brain the murder weapon was never found it was also learned that Burns was an out-of-work waiter who had been fired from his most recent job simply because he had lost most of his hearing. That means that he never heard the murder of Mrs. Gideon and was probably asleep at the time of the attack. One further clue was the dog itself. Witnesses said that the dog barked incessantly at strangers, but they hadn't heard a single woof during the time of the murders. That suggested to the police that the murderer was someone that both the dog and the family was well acquainted with. The murderer appeared to have waited for Ronnie to get home, upon which he murdered her and left. There was no sign of a robbery. There was no sign of a fight. The police were fairly certain that Ronnie was the prime target, so all attention turned to the many, many, and we'll see many, acquaintances that she had. So, this would be a good point to take a brief pause and tell you a little bit about Ronnie Gideon. One could say that she was a bit of a wild one. Her dad was later quoted as saying It's hard to say now, but Ronnie was wild and undisciplined. She simply wouldn't listen to a word that I said. Blonde and beautiful, Ronnie was already a seasoned photography model at the age of 20. Most of her work was on the lurid side, either nude or semi-nude, which made this case a sensational news story in its day. She had posed for a number of true crime magazine pictorials and covers, which, you know, when looking back, seemed to eerily predict how her life would come to an end. Titles that she posed for included Pretty But Cheap, Party Girl, and how about I Am a White Slave? All classics. Yeah, right. She'd been married at 16 to a guy named Robert Flower, but the union was later annulled on the grounds that she was a minor. Ronnie then moved in with her parents, but Dad couldn't tolerate her wild ways and moved out to live alone behind his upholstery shop. Ronnie was known to have had numerous boyfriends and was engaged to a guy named Lincoln Hauser at the time of her death. Now the engagement couldn't have been too serious since she was out on a date with a Wall Street messenger named Stephen Butter Jr. on the night of the murder. Drunk as a skunk, he returned her home at 3 a.m. A short time later, she was dead. So her ex-husband, her fiancé, and Ronnie's date the night of the murder were all tracked down by the police, and they all had alibis. Someone else must have done it. When the roommate, Lucy, returned from her vacation, she was asked to look to see if anything was missing. The only thing that she noticed missing was the alarm clock from her room. So maybe it was lost or maybe it was stolen, but it does seem like an incredibly odd thing for a murderer to steal. The police then turned to Ronnie's diary, which she had kept for the previous five years. In it, she indicated that she had an affair with a married artist and that an illegal operation had been performed. I'll let you fill in the blank as to what that illegal operation was. They tracked him down and he admitted to the affair, but again he had a solid alibi for the night of the murder. The press also reported that she had a little black book. This is really just an address book with more than 125 men and women listed in it. Police did their best to check every one of these leads. Some turned out to be photographers and artists for whom she had posed. Others were models themselves, and still others were doctors and the other typical address book contacts. All the evidence seemed to point to just one man, the man that found the bodies in the first place, the father Joseph Gideon. The police needed conclusive proof to charge him with the crime, but they needed to stall for time to gather up the evidence. So they searched his upholstery shop and they found three pieces of evidence that further suggested his guilt. First, he had a collection of nude photography. Second, he had long, thin upholstered needles that were suitable for stabbing. And finally, he had an unregistered pistol, not that anyone was shot in this case, and it was on the gun charge that he was arrested. He was questioned by police for more than 30 hours and claimed that he'd been out bowling that night. Detectives determined that this was totally untrue, so his bond was set at $10,000. That's about $160,000 today, which was an absurd amount of money for failing to register a gun. His lawyers were able to get it reduced to $1,000, and he was released. And the first thing he did was go back to the scene of the crime with his lawyers. This was a dumb move. If the press and the public could act as jury, Gideon had just been tried, convicted, and hanged for the crime. But secretly, the police knew otherwise. First, there was a single gray suede glove found, and it was much too large to fit on Mr. Gideon's hands. Then there was a bloody fingerprint that didn't match either. Investigators found bits of skin and beard stubble under both of the female victim's fingernails, but, as you can probably guess, Joseph Gideon had no scratches on his face. And lastly, there was the soap. Two soap carvings, to be precise. They were believed to have been carved during the time period between the murder of Mom and the Border and the murder of daughter Ronnie. Ronnie.
2: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: At the time, soap sculptures were a very big thing. Each year, the makers of Ivory Soap, Procter and Gamble, had a national contest to see who could create the best soap sculpture. Now these weren't simple carvings like the tiki heads that I remember making back in uh, middle school. These were extravagant, highly detailed, and original pieces, and the two pieces left behind by the killer were supposedly no exception. So the police contacted the foremost expert on ivory soap carvings, a guy named Henry Byrne, and he was asked to examine the evidence. He told investigators that he had no clue who may have carved the pieces, and he dismissed them as being amateurish. He later admitted in Procter & Gamble documents that he really did recognize the carving style as that of the previous year's winner. But he couldn't state that because of the bad publicity that would have come from the association of ivory soap with the murders. Two days after Joseph Gideon's release on bail, that's April 7th of 1937, or 10 days after the murder, the police suddenly announced that they knew who the real killer was. His name was Robert Irwin, and he was a sculptor who had been in and out of mental institutions. Bingo! In what was to become the largest manhunt since the Lindbergh baby kidnapping five years earlier, police spread the word that they now believed that the 29-year-old artist had committed these crimes. Police were certain that they would find Irwin quickly, but it just didn't work out that way. Nearly three months later, the police finally got the break that they needed. Irwin was working as a busboy and a dishwasher in the bar at Cleveland Statler Hotel. In his spare time, the artist would draw pictures to earn some extra cash. So he had a bit of downtime one night, and he decided to sketch a 19-year-old pantry maid named Henrietta Koscianski. While he drew, she had nothing better to do then study his face. Two days later, while reading a story on the triple homicide in a detective magazine, she couldn't help but notice the strong resemblance between her artistic friend and the suspected murderer pictured in the magazine. So the next day, she went into the kitchen and questioned him as to what his last name was. He replied, Murray, as in Bob Murray. He denied ever ever hearing of a Robert Irwin, but as soon as Henrietta was out of sight, he scooted right out the back door of the place. His next stop was Chicago. Irwin knew that his days of freedom were numbered, so he telephoned the Chicago Tribune and offered to surrender, but they thought he was a screwball and they turned him down. So he then contacted the Herald and Examiner a Hearst paper, and they agreed to pay him cash in exchange for his story. The paper hid Irwin away at the Morrison Hotel for a couple of days, and that's while the police were hunting high and low for him. The Hearst papers ran his complete confession with every shocking detail of the crime. It was an incredible scoop for the paper, so they milked it for all it was worth. You know, they split into multiple parts to run over multiple days. After the story ran, he finally surrendered to the Cook County Sheriff and he was flown back to Manhattan. Without going into a lot of detail here, and if you're curious you can find his story in just about any newspaper archive, Irwin was an artistically gifted orphan, and he had spent much of his adult life in and out of mental institutions. He was born in Los Angeles as Fenelon Arroya Seiko Irwin, and he moved around quite a bit before ending up in New York City in the early 1930s. Then, in 1932, he needed a place to stay, so a friend took him to a rooming house that was owned by Mrs. Gideon. It was as a boarder there that he saw the woman of his dreams for the first time. And no, it wasn't her daughter, Ronnie. Instead, it was her sister, Ethel. He became obsessed with her, but she had absolutely no interest in him. Now, it's not exactly clear if it was his decision or if the court committed him, but shortly after meeting Ethel, he ended up doing a stint at the Rockland Psychiatric Center for nearly three years. During this time, his mental illness became progressively worse, and Irwin became convinced that if he could get the obsessive thoughts of Ethel out of his head, then he could live on a spiritually higher plane and finally realize his true artistic potential. At first, he was determined simply to emasculate himself, but then his mind turned to just killing Ethel outright, and that's why he showed up at the Gideon's apartment that night. Ethel was his only target. And at first, nobody was home, but when Mrs. Gideon finally arrived, she asked Irwin to take the dog for a walk, which he gladly did. Upon returning from the walk, Mrs. Gideon was friendly, and she introduced Irwin to the new boarder, Frank Burns. Then Bob Irwin waited and he waited and he waited for Ethel to get home, but she never showed up. That's when he started questioning Mrs. Gideon, and he did not like what she had to say. You see, Ethel wasn't coming home that night or any other night. She had since married and she lived elsewhere. So Mom, of course, asked Erwin to leave, but he refused. So an argument erupted, and he grabbed her by the throat, and of course she put up quite a struggle. That caused bloody scratches on his face, so he killed her and put her lifeless body under the bed. Next, Ronnie came home and spent what seemed like an eternity in the bathroom. Upon exiting, he whacked her over the head with a blackjack that he had fashioned out of a towel and a bar of soap. It just shattered, so Erwin grabbed her by the throat, took her to the bedroom, and held her that way for more than an hour before she gasped her last breath of air. Lastly, he walked into the bedroom of Frank Burns and stabbed him with the ice pick that he'd actually brought along to kill Ethel with. He calmly washed up, and then he desperately searched the apartment for anything he could find to remind him of Ethel. There really wasn't much all he could find was that missing alarm clock and a few pictures. The press dubbed him the Mad Sculptor, and he was charged with first-degree murder. Now get this, he was determined by doctors to be legally sane. He was represented in court by famed lawyer Samuel Leibowitz, and he pleaded innocent to the charges. Seven days after the trial started, Leibowitz arranged for Irwin to plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence. The judge gave him a term of 139 years. He was eligible for parole on July 26 of 2031. Robert Irwin was sent up the Hudson River to serve out his time at the Sing Sing Correctional Facility. He wasn't there very long before psychiatrists decided that he was schizophrenic. After 38 years in state prisons for the criminally insane, he died of cancer in 1975 at the age of 67. He is buried on the grounds of the Matawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Fishkill, New York. Now just to tie up one loose end here, if you're curious, that trumped-up gun charge against Joseph Gedeon was dismissed on March 23rd of 1938. After the murders, no one was willing to rent the apartment that the three victims had lived in. The superintendent was finally able to lease it to a hotel worker named Sidney Pilly, who said that he was not superstitious. But on August 1st of 1940, a little over three years after the murders took place, police arrived at the apartment to arrest Pilly on pornography charges. As they were all leaving, Pilly said that he forgot to turn off the gas on the stove. So he went back into the kitchen and jumped out the window to his death. Coincidental? Cursed? Maybe. Let's just say that the entire building was torn down and replaced by a six-story building in 1960. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. And now, for a few words from our retro sponsor.
0: I wouldn't say that. just haul off and quit. Just haul. No, don't hold out your hand. Just (laughs) stop. (laughs) That's cousin (laughs) Louis Buck. He's going to hold out his hand. Stop before he gets through. I want everybody to stop. Yes, sir. Mother's best flour. Yes, sir. I want everybody to make biscuits with Mother's best flour, Hank. Neighbors, you make the tenderest, tastiest biscuits you ever baked in your life, and you get Mother's best flour. That goes for rolls, bread, pie crust, and cake, too. Yes, for perfect results with all your baking recipes, the flour to use is Mother's Best. And here, ladies, are three reasons why Mother's Best flour never fails to give you perfect results. Mother's Best is highest quality. It's sifted through silk many extra times, and it's twice oven-tested for seven important baking qualities. To make your baking even more successful... Every sack of Mother's Best flour contains family-tested recipes by Gene Foster, Mother's Best Home Economist. To save you money, each recipe is carefully tested in Mother's Best Kitchen. To save you time, directions are given step by step. In every sack of Mother's Best flour, you also get valuable coupons for a complete set of lovely Roseanne silverware. Now, in addition to all this, Mother's Best is enriched with vitamins and iron to help keep your family strong and healthy. So, it's really no wonder at all that so many thousands of Southern women insist on this famous flour. Try Mother's Best Enriched Flour now. See for yourself what delicious hot biscuits, bread, rolls, muffins, and cake you can make with it. Mother's Best guarantees perfect results or your money back. Get Mother's Best plain or for extra convenience, try Mother's Best Self Rising Flour. Ask for it today. I love to have that gal around her, biscuit, and nice and brown, her pies and caves, people all the rest, cause she makes them all with mother's best. Learn a new one, boy. Learn a new one. That's the biscuit blues. That's the biscuit blues part.
1: That commercial from Mother's Best Flowers from the January 17, 1951 episode of the Mother's Best Flower radio show, and it was broadcast daily from 7.15 to 7.30 a.m. on WSM in Nashville. That guy you hear singing is none other than the legendary Hank Williams. He was paid $100 per week to do the shows. Since he was on the road most of the time, many of the episodes were transcribed. In other words, pre-recorded. That's why the episodes still survive. Fans of Hank Williams love these shows because they give a good glimpse into what his personality was really like. The show came to an end after about a year, and that's when Hank underwent surgery for back pain. Sadly, he died on January first of 1953 at the young age of 29. Mother's Best was introduced in 1941 by the Decatur, Alabama flour mill that was owned by Nebraska Consolidated Mills. Mother's Best appears to be long gone from the store shelves, but the company that produced it is still going strong. Since 1971, Nebraska Consolidated Mills has been better known as the mega corporation ConAgra. And this is a good time to answer today's question of the day. That is because Nebraska Consolidated Mills was the company that introduced Duncan Hines Cake Mix in an effort to sell more flour. Now I had asked you which product was the first to bear the Duncan Hines name, and your choices were 1 Blueberry Muffin Mix, 2 Bread, 3 Cake Mix, 4 Ice Cream, or 5 The Pancake Mix. And as I had mentioned, his name is associated with all of these products. Now, the answer may surprise you. Here they are in order by the year that they were introduced. In 1950, and the answer to this question is ice cream. That's right, Duncan Hines ice cream. It was such a success that he was able to take his name and license it for other products. 1951 gave us the famed cake mix. In 1952, we got both the bread and the pancake mix. And lastly, in 1953 a blueberry muffin mix was marketed. People are surprised to find out that Duncan Hines was a real man, unlike, you know, the fictitious Betty Crocker, Aunt Jemima, and Mrs. Butterworth. Now, without getting into too much detail, this is an entire podcast in itself, he was a traveling salesman in the days before chain restaurants. Having logged tens of thousands of miles each year on the road, and eating in just about every restaurant along the way, he became the go-to guy on where to eat. In 1935, his book Adventures in Good Eating became a bestseller. This was followed by a book on the best lodging in the United States and a successful newspaper column. So it really should come as no surprise that his name became synonymous with good eating. And it was a natural fit that various companies were eager to produce products under his name. And now, for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for, like to call, News of the Weird Past. And today's tidbits all have the same theme in common. They're all due to bad pranks, some of them really bad. Our first story is dated June 23rd of 1955, it was reported that mothers in Whitby, Ontario, which is located on the northwestern edge of Lake Ontario, were in a panic over phone calls they had been receiving. Police said that the caller, who sounded like a teenage girl, had been telephoning the mothers with false news that their child had either been injured or killed. One mother was told that her four-year-old son had been in an accident at the lakefront. Police called and reported back that her boy was just fine. Then, a pregnant mother of five received a call that her six-year-old daughter had been killed by a car. Mrs. Lloyd Robinson was quoted as saying, I couldn't put the receiver on the hook. I was so shocked. I just dropped it. The child was found unharmed. Lastly, Police Sergeant William Diamond was told that his nine-year-old son had been hit by a car while walking to Sunday school. He rushed to the scene and found out that his son had not been harmed at all. The kid was just fine.
2: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Our next story is an example of a prank gone horribly wrong. It started when two U.S. Marines, that's Corporal Edward C. Kaltenbach and Corporal Timothy M. Parsons, they stole a 5-foot, 6-inch, 75-pound, that's about 170 centimeters and 34 kilograms, they stole a Smokey the Bear figure from the nearby Storybook Land Children's Park near Woodbridge, Virginia, on Friday, May 11th of 1962. The two men hid it in their barracks in Washington, D.C. until that Sunday morning. That is when they decided to place the bear on top of a flagpole outside of a home for veterans of war. On their last tug of the rope, Smokey and the 20-foot-long flagpole both came crashing down. Now, for those of you not familiar with images of Smokey the Bear, he holds a steel shovel in his hand, and this replica was no exception. The spade punctured Corporal Kaltenbach's skull, and sadly, he died from a brain hemorrhage. He was only 23 years old. And our last story is dated August 26th of 1976. That's when it was reported that a 32-year-old Crown Point, Indiana woman had received a telephone call from a Dr. Cummings. He told her that her husband had been admitted to the hospital suffering from major convulsions, and they believed it to be the result of a, quote, very contagious parasite. She was told that the medical lab needed to see if she had been exposed, and they instructed her to part her hair down the middle and cut several portions out right down to the scalp. Then she was to place each sample in a separate envelope and wait for a lab technician to come pick them up. No one ever did. In a panic, she called the hospital and found out that her husband was never admitted and that he was perfectly well. As you probably guessed, it was all a nasty prank. It turns out that at least six other women had received similar calls over the previous six months. But this is where it gets really bad. Several of them were told not only to cut their hair, but to also pour drain cleaner onto the bare spots. Of course, anything powerful enough to eat away whatever's clogging your drain will also eat away at your skin. The women all ended up in the hospital with severe chemical burns to their scalps. Awful. Just plain awful. Well, I do hope you enjoyed today's story on the Ivory Soap Murders, as well as the other uh, materials that I provided. I do apologize if I sound like I'm gasping for breath or I'm a little nasally. That's because I'm uh, getting over a bad cold. It's one of the pleasures of being a teacher of teenagers. They get you sick all the time. Anyway, if you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They're Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and from your local library. If you go to Facebook, uh, that's Facebook.com slash Useless Information Podcast. That's one word, Useless Information Podcast. Uh, You can find some support documents for this uh, podcast as well as some other uh, information. Uh, And if you want to leave some comments there, you can. Uh, You can also go to my website. That's uselessinformation.org. And there's an email link uh, there to contact me. Anyway, I thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye. Life's better with American Family Insurance.